Chapter 13 of The Nebulae Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 13. The organ was not silenced, nor was the service suspended. Sir George came down to Cologne, inspected the arch, and rallied his subordinate for an anxiety which was considered to be unjustifiable. Yes, the wall above the arch had moved a little, but not more than was to be expected from the repairs which were being undertaken with the vaulting. It was only the old wall coming to its proper bearings. He would have been surprised, in fact, if no movement had taken place. It was much safer as it was. Canon Parkin was in high good humour. He rejoiced in seeing the pert and officious young clerk of the works put in his proper place, and Sir George had lunched at the rectory. There was a repetition of the facetious proposal that Sir George should wait for payment of his fees until the tower should fall, which acquired fresh point from the circumstance that all payments were now provided for by Lord Blandamer. The ha-haing which accompanied this witticism palled at length even upon the robust Sir George, and he winced under a dig in the ribs which an extra glass of port had emboldened the canon to administer. "'Well, well, Mr. Rector,' he said, "'we cannot put old heads on young shoulders.' Mr. Restray was quite justified in referring the matter to me. It has an ugly look. One needs experience to be able to see through things like this. And he pulled up his collar and adjusted his tie. Westray was content to accept his chief's decision as a matter of faith, though not of conviction. The black lightning flash was impressed on his mental retina. The restless cry of the arches was continually in his ear. He seldom passed the transept crossing without hearing it but he bore his rebuke with exemplary resignation, the more so that he was much interested in some visits which Lord Blandamer paid him at this period. Lord Blandamer called more than once at Bellevue Lodge in the evenings, even as late as nine o'clock, and would sit with Westray for two hours together, turning over plans and discussing the restoration. The architect learnt to appreciate the charm of his manner, and was continually astonished at the architectural knowledge and critical power which he displayed. Mr. Chandler would sometimes join them for a few minutes, but Lord Blandamer never appeared quite at his ease when the organist was present, and Westray could not help thinking that Mr. Chandler was sometimes tactless and even rude, considering that he was beholden to Lord Blandamer for new pedals and new bellows and a water-engine in essay, and for the entire repair of the organ in posse. "'I cannot help being beholden to him, as you genteelly put it,' Mr. Chandler said one evening when Lord Blandamer had gone. I can't stop his giving new bellows on a new pedal-board, and we do want the new board and the additional pipes. As it is, I can't play German music, can't touch a good deal of Bach's organ-work. Who is to say this man nay, if he chooses to alter the organ? But I'm not going to truckle to anyone, at least of all to him. Do you want me to fall flat on my face because he is a lord? Poh! We could all be lords like him. Give me another week with Martin's papers, and I'll open your eyes. Ah, you may stare and sniff, if you please, but you'll open your eyes then.' Ex Oriente looks, that's where the light comes from, out of Martin's papers. Once this confirmation over, and you'll see. I can't settle to the papers till that's done with. What do people want to confirm these boys and girls for? It only makes hypocrites of wholesome children. I hate the whole business. If people want to make their views public, let them do it at five-and-twenty. Then we should believe that they knew something of what they were about. The day of the bishop's visit had arrived. The bishop had arrived himself. He'd entered the door of Bellevue Lodge. He'd been received by Miss Euphemia Jolliffe as one who receives an angel awares. He'd lunched in Mr. Charnel's room, and had partaken of the cold lamb, and the stilton, and even of the cider-cup, 
to just such an extent as became a healthy and good-hearted and host-considering bishop. "'You have given me a regular Oxford lunch,' he said. "'Your landlady has been brought up in the good tradition.' And he smiled, never doubting that he was partaking of the ordinary provision of the house, and that Mr. Charnel fared thus sumptuously every day. He knew not that the meal was as much a set-piece as a dinner on the stage, and that cold lamb and stilton and cider-cup were more often represented by the bottom of a tin of potted meat and a gill of cheap whisky. A regular Oxford lunch. And then they fell to talking of old days, and the bishop called Mr. Charnel Nick, and Mr. Charnel called the bishop of Kerham John, and they walked round the room looking at pictures of college groups and college eights, and the bishop examined very tenderly the little water-colour sketch that Mr. Charnel had once made of the inner quad, and they identified in it their own old rooms, and the rooms of several other men of their acquaintance. The talk did Mr. Charnel good. He felt the better for it every moment. He meant to be very proud and reserved with the bishop, to be most dignified and coldly courteous. He meant to show that, though John Willis might wear the gaiters, Nicholas Charnel could retain his sturdy independence, and was not going to fawn or to admit himself to be the mental inferior of any man. He had meant to give a tirade against confirmation, against the neglect of music, against rectors, with perhaps a back-thrust of the bench of bishops itself. But he had done none of these things, because neither pride nor reserve nor assertiveness were possible in John Willis's company. He had merely eaten a good lunch and talked with a kindly, broad-minded gentleman, long enough to warm his withered heart and make him feel that there were still possibilities in life. There is a bell that rings for a few strokes three-quarters of an hour before every service at Cologne. It is called the Burgess Bell. Some say because it was meant to warn such Burgesses as dwelt at a distance that it was time to start for church, whilst others will have it that Burgess is but a broken-down form of expurgiscere, awake, awake, that those who dozed might rise for prayer. The still air of the afternoon was yet vibrating with the Burgess Bell, and the bishop rose to take his leave. If it was the organist of Cologne who had been ill at ease when their interview began, it was the Bishop of Carisbury who was embarrassed at the end of it. He had asked himself to lunch with Mr. Charnel with a definite object, and towards the attainment of that object nothing had been done. He had learnt that his old friend had fallen upon evil times, and worse, had fallen into evil courses, that the failing which had ruined his Oxford career had broken out again with a fresh fire in advancing age, that Nicholas Charnel was in danger of a drunkard's judgment. There had been lucid intervals in the organist's life. The plague would lie dormant for years, and then break out, to cancel all the progress that had been made. It was like a race-game, where the little leaden horses moved steadily forward, till at last the die falls on the fatal number, and the racer must lose a turn, or go back six, or, even in the worst issue, begin his whole course again. It was in the forlorn hope of doing something, however little, to arrest a man on the downward slope, that the bishop had come to Bellevue Lodge. He hoped to speak the word in season that should avail. Yet nothing had been said. He felt like a clerk who has sought an interview with his principal to ask for an increase of salary, and then, fearing to broach the subject, pretends to have come on other business. He felt like a son longing to ask his father's counsel in some grievous scrape, or like an extravagant wife waiting her opportunity to confess some heavy debt. "'A quarter past two, the bishop said. "'I must be going. "'It has been a great pleasure to recall the old times. "'I hope we shall meet again soon, "'but remember, it is your turn now to come and see me. 
Carrisbury is not so very far off, so do come. There's always a bed ready for you. Will you walk up the street with me now? I have to go to the rectory, and I suppose you will be going to the church, will you not? Yes, said Mr. Charnel. I'll come with you if you wait one minute. I think I'll just take a drop of something before I go, if you'll excuse me. I feel rather run down, and the service is a long one. You won't join me, of course? And he went to the cupboard. The bishop's opportunity was come. "'Don't, Charnel. Don't, Nick,' he said. "'Don't take that stuff. Now, forgive me for speaking openly. The time is so short. I am not speaking professionally or from the religious standpoint, but only just as one man of the world to another, just as one friend to another, because I cannot bear to see you going on like this without trying to stop you. Don't take offence, Nick,' he added, as he saw the change of the other's countenance. "'Our old friendship gives me a right to speak.' The story you are writing on your own face gives me a right to speak. Give it up. There is time yet to turn. Give it up. Let me help you. Is there nothing I can do to help? The angry look that crossed Mr. Charnel's face had given way to sadness. It's all very easy for you, he said. You've done everything in life, and have a long row of milestones behind you to show how you've moved on. I have done nothing, only gone back, and have all the milestones in front to show how I've failed. It's easy to twit me when you've got everything you want. Position, reputation, fortune, a living faith to keep you up to it. I am nobody. Miserably poor, no friends, don't believe half we say in church. What am I to do? No one cares a fig about me. What have I got to live for? To drink is the only chance I have of feeling a little pleasure in life, of losing a few moments the dreadful consciousness of being an outcast, of losing for a moment the remembrance of happy days long ago. That's the greatest torment of all, Willis. Don't blame me if I drink. It's the elixir vitae for me, just as much as for Paracelsus. And he turned the handle of the cupboard. Don't, the bishop said again, putting his hand on the organist's arm. Don't do it. Don't touch it. Don't make success any criterion of life. Don't talk about getting on. We shan't be judged by how we have got on. Come along with me. Show you've got the old resolution, your old will-power. "'I haven't got the power,' Mr. Charnel said. "'I can't help it.' But he took his hand from the cupboard door. "'Then let me help it for you,' said the bishop. And he opened the cupboard, found a half-used bottle of whisky, drove the cork firmly into it, and put it under his arm inside the lappet of his coat. "'Come along.' So the bishop of Carisby walked up the high street of Cologne with a bottle of whisky under his left arm. But no one could see that, because it was hid under his coat.' They only saw that he had his right arm inside Mr. Charnel's. Some thought this an act of Christian condescension, but others praised the times that were past. Bishops were losing caste, they said, and it was a sad day for the Church when they were found associating openly with persons so manifestly their inferiors. "'We must see more of each other,' the bishop said, as they walked under the arcade in front of the shops. "'You must get out of this quag somehow. You can't expect to do it all at once, but we must make a beginning.' I have taken away your temptation under my coat, and you must make a start from this minute. You must make me a promise now. I have to be in Cologne again in six days' time, and will come and see you. You must promise me not to touch anything for these six days, and you must drive back with me to Carrisby when I go back then, and spend a few days with me. Promise me this, Nick. The time is pressing, and I must leave you, but you must promise me this first. The organist hesitated for a moment the bishop gripped his arm. "'Promise me this. I will not go till you promise.' 
Yes, I promise. And, lying and mischief-making Mrs. Flint, who was passing, told afterwards how she had overheard the bishop discussing with Mr. Charnel the best means for introducing ritualism into the minster, and how the organist had promised to do his very best to help him so far as the musical part of the Sunday was concerned. The confirmation was concluded without any contretemps, save that two of the grammar school boys incurred an open and well-merited rebuke from the master for appearing in gloves of a much lighter slate colour that was in any way decorous, and that this circumstance reduced the youngest Miss Bulteel to such a state of hysteric giggling that her mother was forced to remove her from the church, and thus deprive her of spiritual privileges for another year. Mr. Charnel bore his probation bravely. Three days had passed, and he had not broken his vow. No, not in one jot or tittle. There had been days of fine weather, brilliantly clear autumn days of blue sky and exhilarating air. There had been bright days for Mr. Charnel. He was himself exhilarated. He felt a new life coursing in his veins. The bishop's talk had done him good. From his heart he thanked the bishop for it. Giving up drinking had done him no harm. He felt all the better for his abstinence. It had not depressed him at all. On the contrary, he was more cheerful than he had been for years. Scales had fallen from his eyes since that talk. He had regained his true bearings. He began to see the verities of life. How he had wasted his time! Why had he been so sour? Why had he indulged his spleen? Why had he taken such a jaundiced view of life? He would put aside all jealousies. He would have no enmities. He would be broader-minded. Oh, so much broader-minded! He would embrace all mankind— yes, even Canon Parkin. Above all, he would recognise that he was well advanced in life, he would be more sober-thinking, would leave childish things, would resolutely renounce his absurd infatuation for Anastasia. What a ridiculous idea, a crabbed old sexagenarian harbouring affection for a young girl. Henceforth she should be nothing to him, absolutely nothing. No, that would be foolish. It would not be fair to her to cut her off from all friendship. He could feel for her a fatherly affection— it should be paternal, and nothing more. He would bid adieu to all that folly, and his life should not be a whit the emptier for the loss. He would fit it with interests, all kinds of interests, and his music should be the first. He should take up again, and carry out to the end, that oratorio which he had turned over in his mind for years, the Absalom. He had several numbers at his fingers' ends. He would work out the bass solo. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! And the double chorus that followed it, Make ready, ye mighty, up and bear your swords. So he discoursed joyfully with his own heart, and felt above measure elated at the great and sudden change that was wrought in him, not recognising that the clouds return after the rain, and that the leopard may change his spots as easily as man may change his habits. To change a habit of fifty-five or forty-five or thirty-five, to ordain that rivers shall flow uphill, to divert the relentless sequence of cause and effect, how often dare we say this happens? Nemo repente, no man ever suddenly became good. A moment's spiritual agony may blunt our instincts and paralyse the evil in us, for a while, even as chloroform may dull our bodily sense. But for permanence there is no sudden turning of the mind. Sudden repentances in life or death are equally impossible. Three halcyon days were followed by one of those dark and lowering mornings when the blank life seems blanker, and when the gloom of nature is too accurately reflected in the nervous temperament of man. On healthy youth, climatic influences have no effect. 
and robust middle age, if it perceive them, goes on its way steadfast or stolid, whether cela passera tout passera. But on the feeble and failing, such times fall with a weight of fretful despondency. And so they fell on Mr. Charnel. He was very restless about the time of the midday meal. There came up a thick, dark fog from the sea, which went rolling in great masses over Cologne Flat, till its fringe caught the outskirts of the town. After that it settled in the streets, and took up its special abode in Bellevue Lodge, till Miss Euphemia coughed, so that she had to take two Ipecacuña lozenges, and Mr. Charnel was forced to ring for a lamp to see his victuals. He went up to Westray's room to ask if he might eat his dinner upstairs, but he found that the architect had gone to London, and would not be back till the evening train, so he was thrown upon his own resources. He ate little, and by the end of the meal depression had so far got the better of him that he found himself standing before a well-known cupboard. Perhaps the extremeousness of the last three days had told upon him, and drove him for refuge to his usual comforter. It was by instinct that he went to the cupboard. He was not even conscious of doing so till he had the open door in his hand. Then resolution returned to him, aided, it may be, by the reflection that the cupboard was bare, for the bishop had taken away the whisky, and he shut the door sharply. Was it possible that he had so soon forgotten his promise, had come so perilously near falling back into the mire after the bright prospects of the last days, after so lucid an interval? He went to his bureau, and buried himself in Martin Jolly's papers, till the Burgess Bell gave warning of the afternoon service. The gloom and fog made way by degrees for a drizzling rain, which resolved itself into a steady downpour as the afternoon wore on. It was so heavy that Mr. Charnel could hear the indistinct murmur of millions of raindrops on the long lead roofs, and their more noisy splash and spatter as they struck the windows and the lantern and north transept. He was in a bad humour as he came down from the loft. The boys had sung sleepily and flat. Jakes had murdered the tenor solo with his strained and raucous voice, and old Janoway remembered afterwards that Mr. Charnel had never vouchsafed a good afternoon as he strode angrily down the aisle. Things were no better when he reached Bellevue Lodge. He was wet and chilled, and there was no fire in the grate because it was too early in the year for such luxuries to be afforded. He would go to the kitchen and take his tea there. It was Saturday afternoon. Miss Jolliffe would be at the Dorcas meeting, but Anastasia would be in, and this reflection came to him as a ray of sunlight in a dark and lowering time. Anastasia would be in, and alone. He would sit by the fire and drink a cup of hot tea, while Anastasia should talk to him and gladden his heart. He tapped lightly at the kitchen door, and as he opened it a gusty buffet of damp air smote him on the face. The room was empty. Through a half-open sash the wet had driven in and darkened the top of the deal table which stood against the window. The fire was but a smouldering ash. He shut the window instinctively while he reflected. Where could Anastasia be? She must have left the kitchen some time, otherwise the fire would not be so low, and she would have seen that the rain was beating in. She must be upstairs. She had no doubt taken advantage of Westray's absence to set his room in order. He would go up to her. Perhaps there was a fire in Westray's room. He went up the circular stone staircase that ran like a wide well from top to bottom of the old hand of God. The stone steps and the stone floor of the hall, the stuccoed walls, and the coved stucco roof which held the skylight to the top, made a whispering gallery of that gaunt staircase. 
and before Mr. Charnel had climbed halfway up, he heard voices. They were voices in conversation. Anastasia had company. And then he heard that one was a man's voice. What right had any man to be in Westray's room? What man had any right to be talking to Anastasia? A wild suspicion passed through his mind. No, that was quite impossible. He would not play the eavesdropper or creep near them to listen. But as he reflected, he had mounted a step or two higher, and the voice was now more distinct. Anastasia had finished speaking, and the man began again. There was one second of uncertainty in Mr. Charnel's mind, while the hope that it was not balanced the fear that it was and then doubt vanished, and he knew the voice to be Lord Blandamer's. The organist sprang up two or three steps very quickly. He would go straight to them, straight into Westray's room. He would... And then he paused. He would do what? What right had he to go there at all? What had he to do with them? What was there for anyone to do? He paused, then turned and went downstairs again, telling himself that he was a fool, that he was making mountains of molehills, that there did not exist, in fact, even a molehill, yet having all the while a sickening feeling within him, as if some gripping hand had got hold of his poor physical and material heart and was squeezing it. His room looked more gloomy than ever when he got back to it, but it did not matter now, because he was not going to remain there. Then he stopped for a minute to sweep back into the bureau all those loose papers of Martin Jolliffe's that were lying in a tumble on the open desk flap. He smiled grimly as he put them back and locked them in. Le jour viendra qui tout paiera. These papers held a vengeance that would atone for all wrongs. He took down his heavy and wet-sodden overcoat from the peg in the hall, and reflected with some satisfaction that the bad weather could not seriously damage it, for it had turned green with wear, and must be replaced as soon as he got his next quarter's salary. The rain still fell heavily, but he must go out. Four walls were too narrow to hold his chafing mood, and the sadness of outward nature accorded well with a gloomy spirit. So he shut the street door noiselessly, and went down the semicircular flight of stone steps in front of the hand of God, just as Lord Blandamer had gone down them on that historic evening when Anastasia first saw him. He turned back to look at the house, just as Lord Blandamer had turned back then, but was not so fortunate as his illustrious predecessor, for Westray's window was tight shut, and there was no one to be seen. "'I wish I may never look upon the place again,' he said to himself, half in earnest, and half with that cynicism which men affect because they know fate seldom takes them at their word. For an hour or more he wandered aimlessly, and found himself, as night fell, on the western outskirts of the town, where a small tannery carries on the last pretense of commercial activity in Cologne. It is here that the cull, which has run for miles under willow and alder, through deep pastures golden with marsh marigolds or scented with meadowsweet, past cuckoo-flower and pitcher-plant and iris and nodding bulrush, forsakes better traditions and becomes a common town sluice before it deepens at the wharves and meets the sandy churn of the tideway. Mr. Charnel had become aware that he was tired, and he stood and leant over the iron paling that divides the roadway from the stream. He did not know how tired he was till he stopped walking, nor how the rain had wetted him till he bent his head a little forward, and a cascade of water fell from the brim of his worn-out hat. It was a forlorn and dismal stream at which he looked. The low, tannery buildings of wood projected in part over the water, and were supported on arm props, to which were attached water-whitened skins and repulsive portions of entrails 
that swung slowly from side to side as the river took them. The water here is little more than three feet deep, and beneath its soiled current can be seen a sandy bottom on which grow patches of coarse duckweed. To Mr. Charnel these patches of a green so dark and drain-soiled as to be almost black in the falling light seemed tresses of drowned hair, and he weaved stories about them for himself as the stream now swayed them to and fro, and now carried them out at length. He observed things with that vacant observation which the body at times insists on maintaining, when the mind is busy with some overmastering preoccupation. He observed the most trivial details. He made an inventory of the things which he could see lying on the dirty bed of the river underneath the dirty water. There was a tin bucket with a hole in the bottom. There was a brown teapot without a spout. There was an earthenware blacking bottle, too strong to be broken. There were other shattered glass bottles and shards of crockery. There was a rim of a silk hat, and more than one toeless boot. He turned away and looked down the road towards the town. They were beginning to light the lamps, and the reflections showed a criss-cross of white lines on the muddy road, where the water stood in the wheel-tracks. There was a dark vehicle coming down the road now, making a fresh track in the mud, and leaving two shimmering lines behind it as it went. He gave a little start when it came nearer, and he saw that it was the undertaker's cart, carrying out a coffin for some pauper at the union workhouse. He gave a start and a shiver. The wet had come through his overcoat. He could feel it on his arms. He could feel the cold and clinging wet striking at his knees. He was stiff with standing so long, and a rheumatic pain checked him suddenly as he tried to straighten himself. He would walk quickly to warm himself, would go home at once. Home? What home had he? That great, gaunt hand of God. He detested it, and all that were within its walls. That was no home. Yet he was walking briskly towards it, having no other whither to go. He was in the mean little streets. He was within five minutes of his goal, when he heard singing. He was passing the same little inn which he had passed the first night that Westray came. The same voice was singing inside which had sung the night that Westray came. Westray had brought discomfort. Westray had brought Lord Blandamer. Things had never been the same since. He wished Westray had never come at all. He wished—oh, how he wished—that all might be as it was before, that all might jog along quietly as it had for a generation before. She certainly had a fine voice, this woman. It really would be worth while seeing who she was. He wished he could just look inside the door. Stay, he could easily make an excuse for looking in. He would order a little hot whisky and water. He was so wet it was prudent to take something to drink. It might ward off a bad chill. He would only take up very little, and only as a medicine, of course. There could be no harm in that. It was mere prudence. He took off his hat, shook the rain from it, turned the handle of the door very gently, with the consideration of a musician who will do nothing to interrupt another who is making music, and went in. He found himself in that sanded part which he had seen once before through the window. It was a long, low room, with heavy beams crossing the roof, and at the end was an open fireplace where a kettle hung above a smouldering fire. In a corner sat an old man playing on a fiddle, and near him the Creole woman stood singing. There were some tables round the room, and behind them benches on which a dozen men were sitting. There were no young men among them, and most had long passed the meridian of life. Their faces were sun-tanned and mahogany-coloured. Some wore earrings in their ears and strange curls of grey hair at the side of their heads. 
They looked as if they might have been sitting there for years, as if they might be the crew of some long-founded vessel to whom has been accorded a nirvana of endless tavern fellowship. None of them took any notice of Mr. Charnel, for music was exercising its transporting power, and their thoughts were far away. Some were with old Cologne whalers, with the harpoon and the ice-flow. Some dreamt of square-stemmed timber brigs, of the Baltic and the white memel logs, of wild nights at sea and wilder nights ashore. And some, remembering violet skies and moonlight through the mango groves, looked on the Creole woman and tried to recall in her faded features sweet, swart faces that had kindled youthful fires a generation since. Then the grog-boys, the grog-boys, bring hither, sang the Creole. Fill it up true to the brim. May the memory of Nelson never wither, nor the star of his glory grow dim. There were rummers standing on the tables, and now and then a drinking brother would break the sugar-knobs in his liquor with a glass stirrer, or take a deep draught of the brown jorum that steamed before him. No one spoke to Mr. Charnel, only the landlord, without asking what he would take, set before him a glass filled with the same hot spirit as the other guests were drinking. The organist accepted his fate with less reluctance than he ought perhaps to have displayed, and a few minutes later was drinking and smoking with the rest. He found the liquor to his liking, and soon experienced the restoring influences of the warm room and of the spirit. He hung his coat up on a peg, and in its dripping condition, and in the wet which had penetrated to his skin, found ample justification for accepting without demur a second bumper, with which the landlord replaced his empty glass. Rummer followed Rummer, and still the Creole woman sang at intervals, and still the company smoked and drank. Mr. Charnel drank too, but by and by saw things less clearly, as the room grew hotter and more clouded with tobacco smoke. Then he found the Creole woman standing before him, and holding out a shell for contributions. He had in his pocket only one single coin, a half-crown that was meant to be a fortnight's pocket-money. But he was excited, and had no hesitation. "'There,' he said, with an air of one who gives a kingdom, "'there, take that. You deserve it. But sing me a song that I heard you sing once before, something about the rolling sea.' She nodded that she understood, and after the collection was finished, gave the money to the blind man, and bade him play for her. It was a long ballad, with many verses, and a refrain of, "'Oh, take me back to those I love, or bring them here to me. I have no heart to rove, to rove, across the rolling sea.' At the end she came back, and sat down on the bench by Mr. Charnel. "'Would you not give me something to drink?' she said, speaking in very good English. "'You will drink, why should not I?' He beckoned to the landlord to bring her a glass, and she drank of it, pledging the organist. "'You sing well,' he said, "'and with a little training should sing very well indeed. "'How do you come to be here? "'He ought to do better than this. "'If I were you, I would not sing in such company.' She looked at him angrily. "'How do I come to be here? "'How do you come to be here? "'If I had a little training, I should sing better, "'and if I had your training, Mr. Charnel,' "'and she poured out his name with a sneering emphasis, "'I should not be here at all, "'drinking myself silly in a place like this.' She got up, and went back to the old fiddler. But her words had a sobering influence on the organist, and cut him to the quick. So all his good resolutions had vanished. His promise to the bishop was broken. The bishop would be back again on Monday, and find him as bad as ever, would find him worse, for the devil had returned and was making riot in the garnished house. 
He turned to pay his reckoning, but his half-crown had gone to the Creole. He had no money, he was forced to explain to the landlord, to humiliate himself, to tell his name and address. The man grumbled and made demure. "'Gentlemen who drank in good company,' he said, "'should be prepared to pay their shot like gentlemen.' Mr. Charnel had drunk enough to make it a serious thing for a poor man not to get paid. Mr. Charnel's story might be true, but it was a funny thing for an organist to come and drink at the merry mouth and have no money in his pocket. It had stopped raining. He could leave his overcoat as a pledge of good faith and come back and fetch it later. So Mr. Charnel was constrained to leave this part of his equipment and was severed from a well-worn overcoat which had been the companion of years. He smiled sadly to himself as he turned at the open door and saw his coat still hang dripping on the peg. If it were put up to auction, would it ever fetch enough to pay for what he had drunk? It was true that it had stopped raining. There was a lightness diffused behind the clouds that spoke of a rising moon. What should he do? Whither should he turn? He could not go back to the hand of God. There were some there who did not want him, whom he did not want. Westray would not be home, or if he were, Westray would know that he had been drinking. He could not bear that they should see that he had been drinking again. And then there came into his mind another thought. He would go to the church, the water-engine should blow for him, and he would play himself sober. Stay, should he go to the church, the great church of St. Sepulchre alone? Would he be alone there? If he thought that he would be alone, he would feel more secure. But might not there be someone else there, or something else? He gave a little shiver, but the drink was in his veins. He laughed, pot valiantly, and turned up an alley towards the centre tower that loomed dark in the wet, misty whiteness of the cloud-screened moon. End of chapter 13